What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> Segment turned out good. You liked it? Yeah. Let's jump straight into the podcast, Lee, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Cool. So I'm Chase Winninger, host of the podcast. Lee McClellan, co-host. I hope everyone is doing well. And what you were just talking about is that you watched the segment that you filmed with us. That's yes. probably going to end up airing on the 26th, if I had to guess. Okay, good deal. You going to write that down? Yes, I am, because people are asking. Tell all your friends when they're watching. Yeah, TV. my dad was, I'm playing golf with my dad tonight, and I'm, he's been, find out when it's going to air. So. I think, it, yeah, that one should air on the 26th, and that's a float you guys did on the Green River. Mm -hmm. And I think that one might run alongside our 2020 elk hunt. Oh, good deal. Which was this past weekend. Good deal. And it was a lot of fun. So I saw I, that yeah, I've, so I've been on three elk hunts for the show now, but this is the first archery hunt that we've ever done. You know, it's kind of a, it's a fantastic shot. Yeah. The guy, that was a fantastic well, shot. They'll have to watch to see, but I mean, sixty-three yards. I, <laughs> I don't like I, what I told Chad afterwards was I don't know if I could have done any better. Like yeah. I really, it was a little bit high, but I really don't know. I think he hit. Like sixty-three yards with your adrenaline flowing and your your heart pumping. I mean. That's, that's tough, but no. I, I, that guy, we watched him shoot the day before. His name's Ryan Brady. And so we had a target set out there at 30, 40, 50, and I was watching him shoot, and I told Chad after the fact, I was like, that guy, you know, he's good to go. Mm -hmm. And he, um, you know, he, when the bull, it was originally 40 yards, and then it kind of spooked and it ran about 20, and it stopped, and the guy arranged it, and the guy said 63, and you saw him kind of stand there and think about it for a second. I was pretty confident he wasn't going to let that arrow go unless it was going to hit its mark. Mm -hmm. But it, it turned into a pretty eventful, pretty wild day. Got to be five yards from an elk on its feet in the woods, and you know, in the timber. I mean, it was pretty intense. But going out to eastern Kentucky and seeing the elk and, you know, the, the wild horses and all that stuff, it's probably my favorite trip of the year. Yeah. Every year I get to go, which isn't every year, but it was a lot of fun. I covered some of the very first ones. I think we might have got the first elk taken this season. I mean, we shot at 8.05 in the morning on opening day. So, you know, when he took it, he took it to a processor, Appalachian Meats, and um, he was the first elk there. I mean, you're talking an hour in to opening morning. I wouldn't be surprised one bit if that wasn't the first elk to hit the ground in the state of Kentucky this year. So it was pretty cool to be there mm -hmm. for that, too. We got a mower going by out there? Can you imagine? I don't. I don't know if everybody can hear it, but... They've already mowed here today. <laughs> they, I got fresh grass all over my car outside. <laughs> um, Sounds like he's just moving the mower back to another. Yeah, another yeah, place. we'll say that. But anyway, there was a lot of action on the elk hunt. Uh, saw quail and you know heard some grouse and things like that. Oh, good. Um, so I wanted to pitch that along with your segment. Probably going to run on the twenty sixth. All right. So something for people to keep their eye on. And uh, that was a fun segment. I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm also writing a uh, three-page story in Kentucky Field Magazine about what it's like to film yeah. a segment on Kentucky Field TV. Okay. I, I took quite a few stills that day of Chad. Uh, the one of his nice fish turned out those, th that series turned out well. I uh, got some of uh, Jameson uh, editing it and we got some others. So uh, look for that. It'll be in the fall issue of Kentucky Field. When do you have any idea when that's coming out? Um, hopefully, mm, probably middle of next month. Because I'm always looking for my magazines. Um, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about the elk hunt because I, I want to wait for people to see it. Yeah. I want to wait for it to come out to really talk about it. I'm editing it right now. I'm just about two minutes in. Um, but re I'm going deer hunting today, okay? <laughs> Finally, for the first time, it seems like all year, aside from one day, 
the wind is coming out of the west instead of the east, and mm -hmm. that's what I need. Oh, we've had east wind a lot lately. Whether it's southeast or northeast or due east, it seems like every single day has been an east wind. So east wind is about the same for hunting as it is for fishing. Oh well, yeah, the, the deer don't want to move as much during an east wind because their travel patterns and everything, you know, they kind of have their routine set for a west wind because that's what's typical. Mm -hmm. But it's also when I set up my deer stands and when I pick out my spots, I'm assuming west wind because that's the mm -hmm. most common. So honestly, I would have been hunting but I just can't get in there without taking the chance of boogering it up. Mm -hmm. my, my wind with an east wind would be blowing straight to a bedding area. And um, so I'm gonna go in there this afternoon. I was actually in my car on the way to work this morning and I pulled up my weather app and checked it. I saw that the wind was gonna be out of the west this afternoon. I turned my butt around, got back to the house and picked up all my stuff and mm. drove on in. So, And then the other thing that I need to do, I have that cell camera, I've talked about it before. Well, of course, being out there and being in a hurry first day, I set it up on the tree and didn't check to see if it had signal. And I should have known that it wouldn't because I did the same thing there last year on the exact same tree. If I just move it 20 feet down, I'll have cell signal and it'll send me the picture. So I haven't got a single trail cam picture yet. So I'm going to take an SD card out there with me, switch it out and move trees so it'll start sending them. And hopefully I have an idea what I'm looking for after I do that. Um, a few things. So two weeks ago we did our live fall hunting show, the question and answer show. Did you watch any of that? Some, yes. So I actually learned a couple of things I thought were pretty interesting. We had Cody Roden on, who's mm -hmm. been in here with us before. Yeah, Cody is sharp guy. Very sharp, and he he's kind of a, your acorn expert. Mm -hmm. He knows a lot about a lot of things. He's a small game biologist, but he knows um, the mass crops really well. And somebody asked the question, uh, which acorns do you prefer to hunt over for deer? And he said, that white acorns, so we basically have white varieties and red varieties in the state of Kentucky, mm -hmm. right? He said the white variety has less uh, tannin. tannin in it, so it tastes much sweeter to the deer. The mm -hmm. red ones are kind of bitter. So he said early in the season, those white ones are where you want to set up. Mm -hmm. So white oaks and any variety of a white oak. And then um, Gabe jumped in, Gabe Jenkins, who's been on before also, he used to be the deer and elk program coordinator. He said that later in the season, the red oaks are his favorite because those tannins have seeped out of them and they're not bitter anymore and a lot of times they're the only food source left. I did a deer season piece with him and he talked about that <clears throat> last year. So this time of year, September, you know, we're getting into mid-September. Mm -hmm. I mean, the acorns should start falling, should be falling. They are around my house from I, pin oaks. I went hiking yesterday in the gorge and I saw quite a few acorns on the ground. So I'm thinking that um, I might need to focus in on some white oaks. And I, I mean, I know where some are. I just, you know, I might, when I move that camera. I think Cody may have talked about this when he was a guest with us last uh, year. I don't know if we talked specifically about the tannins. I know, we did talk, so because I, I remember that now. My The reason I know tannin, the reason I know the word and what it means is um, we were out in the woods with my buddy Bobby one time, and he picked an unripe persimmon. He said, here, Chase, give it a try. <laughs> and, of course, I've been, I, yeah. Ooh, doggy. So, of course, I trust Bobby, so I bite right into it. And I tell you, my tongue was numb for about an hour. Mm -hmm. And um, he said it was a tannin in it. And it's just because it was unripe. But once they ripen up. It's like up, you put an alum, like, a, you know, some alum in your mouth. I'm trying to think of something that can, I mean, it just literally makes your, it's so bitter, it almost takes away your taste for a little bit. Mm -hmm. The tannins. I, I recommend anybody to go out and eat an unripe persimmon and you'll never yep. forget. My granddaddy played that trick on me before. Yeah, barely. <laughs> I, I'm going to start doing it to people now too. But I completely understand why they prefer the white oaks over the red oaks early in the year if that tannin is in the red oaks. And I mean, the, it makes those sour, you know, the super sour candy. Yeah. 
persimmon smacks it's i mean that's yeah. that's diddly wings compared to yeah. eating a unripe persimmon so that's kind of what I, I was thinking you know i'm going deer hunting today i should probably talk a little bit about that mm -hmm. point of advice would be that if you got a cell cam check the service on it because that honestly i have no idea what deer are out there i haven't been in the spot i hunted it one time and did i tell you about that first time you know, i dropped my backpack into the creek no that climbed up my deer stand it's right over a creek uh, two minutes into the hunt, I drop my backpack out. The creek's up. So there goes my backpack that has my trail camera, my binoculars, my car keys, everything floating down the creek away from me. So I have to climb down real quick and go chase it down and get out in the water. And I climb back up and about five minutes later, I dropped it out again. <laughs> and I had to get me. So I, my first hunt was a complete, you know. <laughs> so I... Uh, Very 2020. So it was like the perfect yeah, 2020 year. Exactly. The first deer hunt of 2020 was 2020. Mm -hmm. It wrapped up into a deer hunt. So I ended up, after I'd made all that noise and commotion and walked around, I said, I'm just going to go sit somewhere else. So ended up seeing some deer, but I didn't get to hunt. So this tonight should be my first hunt in the spot I want to be in of the whole year. And for it to be two weeks into season and me just saying that's kind of crazy. Because typically I'd have been out there seven or eight times already. But that mm -hmm. wind and then, you know, just 2020 in the first hunt. Yeah. Kind of messed me up. But... You know, I've seen a lot of really nice deer kill already this year. I thought more, for sure one of my buddies would have one down by now, but no, sir. Somebody, actually, one of my buddies had a really good chance, Brandon, at getting a deer on opening morning. In fact, on opening morning, I wasn't going to hunt because of the wind, and I said, what time do I need to be at your house to help you out? That's how confident I was. He mm -hmm. said, show up about 745, we'll start dragging. And he climbed his stand that morning, and the neighbor next door, I guess, knows where Brandon's stand is, and drove straight down there too and just started shooting guns to, to intentionally mess them up. And the person isn't like a anti-hunting person or you know an activist. I guess they just thought it'd be a funny joke. Hmm. And I, that's just a non-hunter's mentality because mm -hmm. if you put the time and effort and everything into it, you would not think that was funny. Yeah. So I told Brandon, if they talk to the guy, let him know if he does it again, you're calling the game warden because there is a hunter harassment law. Mm -hmm in the state of Kentucky. If somebody's trying to intentionally mess up your hunt, then mm -hmm. they can be charged with it. So. No doubt. And that's something that was talked about during the call-in show also. Let's see. Well, that was a uncool maneuver, wasn't it? Oh, very. I would have been, I was ticked off for Brandon. Yeah. He, he handled it better than I would have. You know, I think I'd have probably walked over there immediately and had a talk with him. But um, something I brought up to you earlier, and I'm hoping you have a little bit of advice for me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm potentially going musky fishing tomorrow tomorrow see we have hour restrictions because of covid we aren't allowed to work over a certain number of hours yep. per week and that elk you hunt, have your time yeah obviously the elk hunt i went way long on so i'm looking for opportunities to cut some hours here mm -hmm. and there and you know save a little bit of time and so got a text from uh bobby yesterday he said i need to get out of work for a day i can take off any day let's go musky fishing and i said well thursday works well for me <laughs> so i hit you up earlier and told you i was going to go and ask if you minded, you know, putting some feelers out there for mm -hmm. me. You got any good advice? Well, I, I did put a feeler out. Uh, the head of uh, the acting director of fisheries, Paul Wilkes. I was looking for Mike Harden, but I believe Mike might be on Cave Run today. So he, so so that's the hot tip is yes. Cave Run. <laughs> um, and you know, and Mike's told me this before. He loves in September when those nighttime temperatures start falling down into the it mid fifties. It was cool 50s. last night. I mean, this morning it was cool. Yeah. I loved it. I mean, I'm. One hundred percent fan of oh, it. Gets me in the mood. For me too. I love it. Be outside. Yeah. Anytime that you walk outside, it's a little crisp, and you think maybe I should go back and get my jacket. That's my. That's yeah. when it starts getting good. Yeah, no doubt. So he says they'll move up. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one of his favorite times of year is this, this time in September when you first get those first nights in the 50s. Uh -huh. And uh, when he says they move up, does he mean up in the water column? Yeah, or? but just kind of move up more toward the back of the cuts is what okay. Paul said. Because they cool hit off those with hit those with like a swick or some other kind of crankbait. So the, I'm guessing that the water temperature is shallower in those areas. And also the water. rain that we've had recently was likely colder than what's mm -hmm. in the lake. So that may, for relief, that may pull them up as well. I'm trying to remember where I was the other day, somewhere. And oh, shoot, where was it? I was on some creek the other day. I, I can't remember where. But um, the water, oh, Drennan Creek in Henry County, um, the water temperature had to be 10 degrees less than it was the previous time I was there. Mm -hmm. um, it was noticeably cooler. And there was these big pockets of gizzard chad swimming around everywhere too. But so if the creeks are cooling off, nighttime air temperature is cooling off, you got to think the back of those cuts where there's water flowing in is, is where is where to head. That's what Paul thought. They're a cold water fish. In mm -hmm. fact, I think this is about as far south as you can catch a muskie. Yeah, it's, you're, we're right at the some, southern, some, southern There might be the some range. in Tennessee. I think there are a few. I know there's some in the Big South Fork. Okay. Um, so we're right at the southern end of the range for the muskie so, lunch. So I, pref I would prefer to fish the rivers. I just like moving water. I like the rivers. I'd, I'd, I'd rather be on my kayak, mm -hmm. honestly. But... um. Right now, Licking River was 3,200 CFS this yeah. morning when I looked, and Green River was 4,400 CFS. It's, you know, uh, Green went up seven and a half feet yeah. from those rains we had on Sunday morning. Yeah, just Liberty trying, flooded again. They're trying to drop the bottom out of it. Mm -hmm. I saw really bad flash floods in, uh, around the Red River, too. Mm -hmm. I, I, well, I, a bunch of campers had to be rescued. I was driving back from the elk hunt on Sunday, coming through that area, coming through, uh, you know, Campton and Slade, and it was just pouring rain. So I'm not surprised. And, and that, that eastern part of the state where you got steep hills, hmm. all that water runs down It even doesn't quicker. take any time at all no. for it to jump up quick. And now it'll drain out quick, mm -hmm. uh, but not from the base of a reservoir like at the top. I went out Sunday morning to look at Elkhorn and it was low. Yeah. And I went out the next day and it was 1,000 CFS. Oh yeah, I think I looked at it yesterday and it was 600 something. Mm -hmm. It's dropped down to around mid 300s okay. this morning. So potentially, so if I'm going musky fishing tomorrow, I need to hit probably either Green River Lake, which is being pulled real hard, it mm -hmm. sounds like, and is up also. Yeah. Sounds like Cave Run's probably the ticket. That's what I would recommend. Some kid uh, called or emailed Chad the other day and uh, told him he had caught a 54-incher on Cave. And this wow. is a 13-year-old kid. Caught a 54-incher on Cave. That's a beauty. And I've, I've seen quite a few, you know, on social media coming through from Cave Run, so I'm not opposed to doing that at all. I might find myself tomorrow morning about seven o'clock. Will you be in your kayak? No, if we go to the lake, we're gonna take a boat. Okay. I don't have a boat, but Bobby does. Okay. So. Well, well, it's actually my old boat when I had in college in 1984. <laughs> you know, something or another, but it works just fine. Heck yeah. So we might uh, find ourselves- Best boat is a paid off boat. That's yeah. the best boat you'll ever have. I like uh, Bobby's boat because it's not mine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Paid off boat that doesn't belong to you is the best, best boat. <laughs> yeah. So that might be the game plan for uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, we just uh, before you walked over, we laid off this weekend show. Laid it off means that we bounced it out and sent it out to everybody who's gonna who's gonna run it, which I think is like thirty-two affiliates as far north as Chicago, as far south as Atlanta. Just for those who are keeping track like me. Mm -hmm. Coming up on this week's uh, show is actually a, a piece that I think is pretty interesting. It's the uh, fish kill assessment from last year. Remember when they had the mm -hmm. fish, fish kill in the Kentucky River? Uh, we sent, um, well, I went out there one day and Jameson went another day and tagged along with some of our fisheries crews as they did their assessment of the fish kill. And the piece kind of, you know, shows 
what goes into it. How do you get the numbers? How do you get the the counts? That's and good the for estimates? people to know. Yeah, and you and you see a lot of the fish that were, you know, affected by it. Um, a lot of drum, a lot of carp, a lot of suckers, you know, a bunch of sport fish. And then you also learn about the fish that didn't get affected by it, like gar and things like that. Now, I, th I think it's interesting to hear why. Crayfish and mud puppies and how they're affected, turtles and birds and everything like that. So it's, uh, it's an interesting piece if people are actually interested in biology or interested in what the department does. seems like every time there's a fish kill, everybody wants to talk about it, mm -hmm. you know. So you might as well talk about what happens after it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. That was my very first assignment at Fish and Wildlife was after the wild turkey fire. Really? And that the, the was a complete kill from Lawrenceburg down to the mouth. Well, that's similar to what this I one was. I saw some gigantic paddlefish. This I only saw one paddlefish while I was out there. This one um, took place just a little bit, in, no, 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 south. It took place a little bit south of Frankfurt, not quite to Lawrenceburg. And um, I don't think it made it all the way to the mouth. Mouth. I think it kind of diluted itself before it got there. So it wasn't as bad as the one you're talking about, but it was still pretty I bad. I couldn't believe how clear the water was because the whiskey tied up all the sugars uh -huh. and a lot of the, the particulate got tied up with it and dropped to the bottom. It was as clear as Lower River Lake. Yeah. You could see the bottom out in the middle. Really? Didn't realize how many zebra mussels there were in the, the Kentucky River. Mm -hmm. I, need, I wonder how mussels are affected. That's not good for them. You know, I need to let a biologist talk about this because mm. if I had speculated, I'd just be speculating. But it, it, I couldn't believe how clear it was. It was amazing. So that's coming up on this week's show, and that we'll run that segment on uh, YouTube and Facebook next week too. So I was kind of hoping people would watch that one and learn learn something. Yeah, you know, alongside that one's a dove hunt from this year. Mm. We already got out there and busted them one day. So. I was at the same field. You we were at the field. We didn't shoot at that field though. No. We okay. we just went out there and had fun shooting mm. the public field on opening day. But I think two days later. No, the next day. So the second day of dove season, we went to a private field and shot. You know, filming a segment, we don't want to be in people's way on a public field. Mm -hmm. We don't want to, you know, cameraman walking around the middle yeah, of the make field. A field. Yeah. yeah, so you don't want to flare the birds. So just out of pure respect for other hunters, you know, public field hunts are a little bit tough to put on TV. Because, I mean, you could be that guy who's out there messing up somebody else's hunt if you're trying to walk out and get a certain shot or stand mm -hmm. far. You know, it's... You basically, it's like having extra hunters in the field because it's not like you stand right next to each other. No doubt. So, yeah, I would have liked to have filmed Did you on, do well? On the private li yeah. hunt? Limits. I think there were 12 hunters and 10 people got limits. Wow. Yeah, so, and we quit shooting at seven. That's something that is kind of talked about in the piece is how you need to give the birds an opportunity. Some people cut you off at five. Yeah. Uh, we didn't start shooting until almost four, though. Yeah. So it was just a three-hour dove hunt. But it's very important to... Let those birds, if you shoot them till the sun goes down, yeah. as late as you can, you'll heat that field up and they won't come back. Yeah, you need to give them a chance to feed if you want to keep hunting it. Yeah. And we were hunting a uh, cornfield that had been cut for silage. Mm. It had been cut several, I mean, I'm not sure, maybe a, a week or two before, but there was standing corn all around us, but that cut cornfield is where we were hunting. And it was nice because when they chop a field for silage, they don't even leave the stalks in the field. You know how mm -hmm. a lot of times you're up past the cornfield and there's like, a foot mm -hmm. tall stalks. Well, this one was to the ground. So it made finding birds a lot easier. No doubt. I think we recovered every single bird that day. That uh, was good. That's really good. Yeah. That makes me mad sometimes at where you're at shoots and people aren't very diligent about finding the birds. Well, they'll, the they'll give it a cursory look and then they'll just come back. The very, okay, Bundy. The very first bird Chad shot. Mad. The very first bird Chad shot kind of sailed down and it went into the 
standing corn about 30 yards deep. <laughs> I was like, oh man. But he, he, you know, rolled his sleeves down and went trekking through there. I hate walking through standing corn. This oh God, it's terrible. It's not, I mean, the leaves will cut you up, mm -hmm. it's sharp, but there's also a pollen on it. And sometimes it gets my allergies just going crazy. Yeah, but luckily, I guess Chad wasn't affected by it, and we had a good I had shoot, a great so. uncle who would invite me and my grandfather up to pick corn. We were yeah. like, he'd feed us nice, but we'd pick his field of corn. He sold it alongside the road. I got you. And, uh, man, I, I, I learned quickly, wear long sleeves, wear long pants, yeah. no matter how hard it is. That first day of dove season, I, uh, <clears throat> I had quite a bit of luck myself. Ended up getting my limit of 15, um, uh, what are they called, morning doves. And then shot four ringnecks. Really? Eurasian yeah. collars? Uh -huh. Yeah. So I ended up going home with 19 doves, which All is right. not, not very typical. And I cleaned those. So just so people know, the limit of doves is 15. Mm -hmm. But the Eurasian doves don't count against Don't count limit. towards your limit. So I had four Eurasians sitting over there. And I, so I, I got to keep on going until I got 15 mornings. Mm -hmm. And that was, and if you get 15 morning doves. You I, have to stop. I would not shoot another dove thinking it's a Eurasian because. You can't I, really tell. I mean, they're bigger, but that would be an easy, easy Screw mistake up. to make. So, so I mean, in the guide it says, you know, once you can, you can't just try to hunt just for Eurasians once your 15 bird daily limit's yeah. been reached, yeah. the morning doves. Yeah, so that's how it worked is basically as I was shooting uh, morning doves, you know, occasionally I'd sprinkle in a Eurasian here and there, and then I ended up. Well, I'm not, you know, I've never shot one in Kentucky. I've seen them in Florida by the Blue Zillion. They hang out in certain spots. We were hunting uh, close to a feedlot for cattle, mm -hmm. and they kind of hang out like pigeons up there. Mm -hmm. And so we were just a couple hundred yards away, and uh, the Eurasians were coming, they were just mixed in with the morning doves flying over. It's unfortunate for them, but yeah. I don't think the farmer minded because. I mean, they're literally just like, they almost look like a mix between a pigeon and a dove. And a dove, yep. They have a different colored head on them. And they, they make a different call, too. It's kind of a weird call. I, ne I never heard them call. Well, they're, they're on golf courses in Florida, left and right. That makes sense. So, uh, yeah, that's what's coming up on this weekend's show. I kind of wanted to preview it a little bit. Cool. It's our first show uh, on TV, a regular show, in a month. We were preempted for two weeks, and we had two live shows during mm -hmm. that time. So, it's been, um, oh, since late mid-August since we had our last real show. So it's kind of back to normal for me, back to the grind. Um, what do you have written down, Lee? I got one thing I wanted to hit on that I think is interesting for deer hunters, something to know about mm -hmm. um, coming up that's new this year. Well, um, the stream topwater bite is on. Okay, so uh, whopper poppers? Yes. Um, stuff like that? Yeah, buddy of mine kicked my butt with a whopper popper very the other day. That's a bait I have not bought. I've never thrown a whopper popper. Partially because of the price tag. Yeah. Well, I have to admit, Berkeley makes ones about $4 cheaper. Okay. Well, it's still probably, I mean, it's like a $15 bait, right? No, it's 10 10 for the Berkeley one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking that the regular Whopper Plopper was They're 14 to 50 Would not want to hang that up in a tree. No. But and when he, when we were putting our boats together and stuff, it's like, well, why, why does he have a baitcaster? Why are the bogs carrying a baitcaster? And uh, he's like, well, we'll try, brother. And he had that Whopper Plopper on there. Yeah. And I mean, he made a dozens upon dozens of cast to catch about 10 but they were all nice big fish. yeah no the top water is my absolute favorite way to catch fish mm -hmm. um it just is unproductive so much of the year and so, like midday you aren't going to catch fish on top water mm -hmm. or you shouldn't because they don't want to be up there two inches from the sun hitting I mean, the fish can't blink so they don't want the sun just beating in their eyes so mm -hmm. but early morning late evening or at night when the sun's not an issue for them 
you know, this was a weird day. It was sunny, it was hot, and he was catching them. And in shallow flowing water, places where I would never think to even throw a bait that big. Yeah. I mean, 18 inches of water had flow. That was the key. Yeah. Um, I was like, I'm sure the top water bite will go away. Got one. I mean, it, yeah. it was a weird day, but he was fishing in places I would never dream to throw a top water. Yeah, that's fun. And I think the flowing water helped him. I mean, he caught them all day. I would like to get out there and throw top water. Maybe that's something I'll try next time I hit the creek. Because my bites really slowed down at the creek. Um, last time, last two times I went, I didn't do nearly as well as I had before. But maybe it's that change of a of a bait presentation. Mm -hmm. And like I told you earlier, my last creek fishing trip was uh, Drennan Creek in Henry County, and there were literally schools of thousands of shad swimming around, just everywhere. And I sat there and I thought to myself, well, how can I compete with that? No doubt. You know? That's what I feel on Harrington Lake. Yeah. Well, I ended up catching uh, four Kentucky bass that day, all off the exact same spot. And every one of them's belly was just blown up like a balloon. Mm -hmm. And one of them, uh, you know, burped up a, a, a shad. They, I mean, that's what they were in there feeding on. And so I took my cast net, which I had in the car, went down there and caught some of those shad and hooked them up and for summer I didn't get a bite on that. Hmm. I, I think that, you know, why would they key in on one lone fish when there's all those big schools swimming Yeah, around? they just rip through them and... Yeah. It might have been a time to throw an Alabama rip. Could have been. See, but that's another bait that I don't throw. On the creek. Yeah. Because of the, the, you know, it's different. I'll throw a $25 musky lure mm -hmm. because it's attached to a 120 pound um, leader with 65 <laughs> pound test and I'm mm -hmm. probably not going to lose it. Yeah. But throwing six pound mono with a $15 bait on it's a risky proposition. I totally agree. That's why I like my little nid rig. He, th he threw the uh, whopper popper on braid, 20 okay. pound braid. I usually fish 15 pound braid on my creek rod now. Mm -hmm. I've pretty much done away with mono and fluoro uh, for my normal setups. I'll tie, I'll use an Albright knot and tie up a, a leader off the braid, but I just like how braided line casts so much more. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have stretch to it. it uh, you know, it's stronger and there's no memory whatsoever. So you know how sometimes people out there are casting um, and those, their, their line kind of has loops or twist mm -hmm. in it? That, that doesn't happen to you with braid. The dreaded noise. Yeah. You're like, oh, Mr. Bird Nest. Yeah, Hello. Any of that. But the braid just comes off silky smooth every time. And it's stronger. There's, in my opinion, it's my favorite line now. And up until a year ago, I really hadn't fished it. I got into fishing braid when I was on the river. And you know, aside from cutting the fire out of your hands every time you try to pull a snag out. It's a pretty good line. Mm -hmm. What else you got? I, like I said, I got this one thing I really want to hit on. Go ahead. Uh, well, are you familiar with any of CWD freezers um, locations? No. So, of course, the state's been monitoring for CWD for a long time, right? Yep. And now I think all of our neighbor states, except for Indiana, are CWD positive. Mm -hmm. Kentucky still hasn't got a confirmed case of CWD. Yeah, and it's different than EHD. There's some videos that we've done um, with deer biologists that would do a better job explaining this than me. So, a new monitoring tool that we're putting out there this year is voluntary freezer drop-offs. So basically, we're putting freezers throughout the state, and there's a map that, you know, there's locations available online, and this will be updated as more freezers are added and a hunter can take their deer head there with about six inches of the neck attached and put it in the garbage bag which is supplied, fill out a little form that says where it was killed, what your name is, you know, you probably need your confirmation number, 
and then you tear off the bottom part of that form and it has a number on it and you attach the other part of the form to the uh, bag that has the head in it and then you just put the head in the freezer and <clears throat> our crew will uh, test that deer for CWD and then so it's it's a, basically a way for us to where gather. can they access the freezer locations it's uh, on the department's website okay and we're in the process here in the tag you can print one off of those two they're available at the location Okay. So you, oh, okay. you can pull up to the freezer with a just a dead deer, or you probably need something to cut its head off with. But every you, the bag is there, the the sample data sheets there. There's instructions on the freezers themselves for how you do this. And basically, you cut the head off, you put the head in a bag, you attach the uh, data sheet to the bag, you take the bottom part of the data sheet and keep it yourself, and then uh, put the the deer head in the freezer. And our people will be going around collecting those and testing them for CWD. And the benefit to the hunter is that all you gotta do is get online, and I think they said, you know, it's several weeks later, it's a couple weeks later, and uh, enter that number that's on the your bottom tear-off portion mm -hmm. of that sample, or of that data sheet, and it'll tell you if your deer was CWD positive or not, it'll give you the exact age of the deer, and it basically gives you the, you know, all the bio biology and all the statistics of the deer. So a lot of people out there always wanna know, how old is mm -hmm. my deer, a lot of arguments, you know. I think a big benefit is that people actually get the exact age of their deer, mm -hmm. and it, you know, they're they've also. So, will they receive that then, or would this be sent to them? No, it'll be available online, so they'll basically just have to look it up. Okay. And uh, it, the the only way, so that's a way to basically get your deer tested for CWD. Kyle Sam's deer biologist told us that uh, the CWD, no CWD, CDC. Yeah, Center for whatever it is. Hmm. CDC recommends not eating deer that are infected with CWD. We've never had a case in the state of Kentucky, so I'd say you're safe. But it's a way for you to be 100% sure mm -hmm. if you're kind of on edge about so it. So they'll provide the age? The exact age. Your deer was 2.5. Your deer was 4.5. You know, your deer was 8.5. So you'll get the exact age back. And that that's a way for me to take a lot of guesswork out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, another question. Instead of looking at teeth and yeah, guessing. Yeah, every, everybody's guessing. I killed this buck, he was 14 years old. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Yeah. So you can kind of get that taken out. And a lot of people are probably thinking, well, what if I want to get my deer mounted? You know, you can still do that. You just need to cape it out and then skull cap it, get the, uh, you know, cut the antlers off because mm -hmm. they have switched up how they're testing. They used to test the brain and the lymph nodes and now they're only testing the lymph nodes. So the brain isn't necessary. You can skull cap the deer and get it mounted and uh, still have it tested. You see, jotting notes. Mm -hmm. There might be something to write like a little blurb that's a, about. That's what I was gonna do. Well, I've got uh, plenty of footage from interviews we did with Kyle that you can watch or you can just interview him yourself. Cool. But that's a, it's a program that, you know, we're just now trying to put the word out there about. I think it's pretty cool. Because if you're a hunter, don't you want to help out and uh, with the mm -hmm. sampling and help out with the testing? Because basically the sooner, after, if we get CWD, the sooner we find out about it, the better we're going to be able to control it. And it's a 100% of the time fatal disease, you know. So we probably need to get a hold on that as soon as mm -hmm. we can. And monitoring is the best way. So I think we plan on testing over 2,000 deer this year. For yeah. So something to be aware of if you're a deer hunter. One of the freezers is here in Frankfurt. There's one in Lawrenceburg. Um, they're kind of scattered all throughout the place. That's awesome. Yeah. And the only area of the state that I don't think has uh, good access to a freezer right now is kind of around uh, 
along the Western Kentucky Parkway, you know, around that Litchfield type area, mm -hmm. but you know, they're trying to get more freezers in location. So they're, they'll be expanding the map. Good. Yeah. What else you want to talk about, Lee? I've got, I've got pretty much nothing else and I hear them weed eating closer and closer <laughs> to our window. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think they have a radar. Are they doing a podcast name? Doot, doot, doot. Yes. All right. Let's start the mower. I'm surprised they're not chopping down a tree out here. I mean, they do a great job with our uh, groundskeeping. You mm -hmm. know, I'll give them credit for that. But uh, I don't, you know, sometimes I'm surprised at how little that audio comes across on the podcast. I think it's going to be terrible. And then I'll, I'll pull the audio in and I'll listen to it. And it's really not that bad. But mm. I got a feeling this one might be audible here in a second. So if you got nothing else, I say we wrap it up. You got anything you want to hit on? Um, the uh, tailwater should be heating up soon. I love fall on Cumberland River. Cumberland? Mm -hmm. Okay, because I was just thinking, I know that the other tailwaters are blown, blown out. I would not kayak green at 4,400 CFS. Oh, my God. Well, we, when we saw it at 2,000, that's a fool's errand. To... Yeah, if you can kayak it at 50 CFS, you probably shouldn't do it at 4,500 <laughs> CFS. And we did it at 50 that day. So, uh, yeah, basically, look for those white oaks. Get in the woods, go hunting, go fishing. Things are good right now. And Cody said we have, looks like a good mass crop this year. Yeah. All right, let's 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 cut it off. I see our weed eater right outside the window now, so. That's just part of it. <laughs> All right, Lee. thanks for stopping by. All right, everybody have a good one. <laughs>